Today, I am going to uh, do something that um, I'm not sure I've ever done it this way before. And in fact, if I reflect back on first service, I felt myself first service ranting a little bit. So just prepare yourself. If, um, if you don't want to feel that, I'm not angry, um, but if you don't want to feel that, we've got coffee and just kind of, you know, let me know you're going to get some coffee and don't come back. Uh, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to review Romans, and here's my idea. Um, we've spent a year in Romans. <laughs> Have we learned anything? Has it changed anything for us? And I'm going to actually go one step further. I'm going to invite you to, to let me know what you have learned. Um, if, if you have my phone number, text me. If you have my email address, email me. I want to know what you've learned in Romans. Um, really. I, I don't usually seek feedback. <laughs> the feedback I get involuntarily is interesting sometimes. Um, but I, I'm inviting it now. I'm inviting you. Let me know what's landed. Let me know if there's still parts that you just go, this was so confusing. Um, and I'm not looking for affirmation, you did a good job. I'm really looking for, did we learn things going through the book of Romans? Because if we didn't, we're going to do it again. <laughs> Seriously, if we didn't, we're going to do judges. We prepared for judges. I'm prepared for judges. I've Don will tell you, I carry stacks of judges' books around all the time now. I'm preparing deeply for judges, have been for months now. We're going to go through judges, and if we haven't learned anything, which means if you don't light me up, um, we're coming back to Romans because we need to understand what is going on in this book, um, and it needs to have made an impact on us. Um, if not, what are we doing here? Really? If this hasn't, if we haven't learned something, and that's the title of this message is Lessons Learned. If we haven't learned anything, then why are we doing this? Um, so I encourage you, let me know. I'm going to try to summarize um, some things that I think are really important, but you let me know what's, what's landed with you. Um, I, I've got some summary things here. None of the quotes I have are, are new quotes. They're all from old lessons. I, I went through all my outlines, all my PowerPoints for 42 messages, and kind of said, what's essential? And, and part of it, I just went, I need to preach this again. This is good stuff. Um, but, but it needs to have made an impact on us. Um, Dan Wallace, a great New Testament scholar, he says this, this letter is arguably the most important document of the Christian faith. It stands behind virtually all great movements of God in the last 1900 years. Romans is significant. Um, Romans is the clearest presentation of the gospel in the New Testament. It's the clearest, most um, elaborate, well-reasoned-out presentation of the gospel. There are, there are other presentations of the life of Christ and, and, and in narrative form, kind of letting us know what he did. Um, Galatians is another presentation of the gospel, but it's more polemic. In Galatians, Paul, in those six chapters, is, is arguing against somebody. He's trying to straighten something out. In Romans, Paul is doing something different. He's presenting the gospel in order to unify a church. I, I alluded to this a number of times, talked about it at length when we began this series. The church in Rome was not started by Paul. It was started, um, in all likelihood, by converts who were at the day of Pentecost, who had come to Jerusalem for the feasts, um, and, and now they have gone back to Rome, these Jewish people 
have come to Christ and they've come to the conviction, all of the stuff in the Old Testament, the pictures and the promises and the predictions, the prophecies, they were all pointing forward and they embraced. uh, And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. They've now moved back to Rome and they have in their uh, Jewish community have said, we're, we're Christ followers. We believe Christ is the Messiah. In addition, there is a growing number of people who have become converts who are Gentiles from Paul's missionary journeys to the Gentile world who have moved to Rome. We see that even in the last couple of weeks as we saw people who were part of Paul's missionary band and his team, and, and he's greeting them and saying, hey, guys, in Rome, hi, and he, he knows them. So, so the church is, has not been planted by Paul. He, he can't unify them w- with kind of the strength of his personality. Um, the, the church was not planted by Paul. Uh, there's a, a Jewish Christian contingent and then some Gentile Christians who've all ended up in, in Rome together. Um, and as they've ended up in Rome together, they've had some pretty significant things they've had to sort out as these Jews and Gentiles have gotten together in Rome because they were trying to figure out how, how Jewish do we need to keep being? Um, because the, the Jewish Christians were very comfortable with all of these rituals and all of these things that, that they understood and pointed them to Jesus. But the Gentiles, it, wasn't, it had never been a part of their life. And they were like, do we have to do all of that stuff? And they were trying to figure out what's, what's required for us to, to be a part of this, this Christian community. Um, and, and it wasn't easy for them to figure it out. In fact, there was enough bickering and, and squabbling between these two groups that the Emperor Claudius... Um, about five years before Paul writes the book of Romans, he expels all the Jews and the Christians from Rome. He just says, you guys are fighting, you're being disruptive, you have to leave. Now, when he died, Emperor Claudius, they, they were able to come back, but now they're back and they're, they're still trying to figure this out. And there's probably some finger pointing. Is we had to, it's your fault that we had to leave. No, it's your fault. You know, I left a business behind and now somebody's occupied my storefront. And, and there's probably all kinds of bickering going back and forth. And then when they're getting together, they're trying to figure this out. And Paul writes this gospel presentation to, to unify them. Um, they have, they kind of said, how do Jews and Gentiles get together in a, in a church that's, that's unified around Jesus Christ? And, and Paul writes this in a very elaborate form, 16 chapters that, that Dan Wallace at least would say, understanding this has been the, the basis for every great movement of God for, uh, well, since Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, and Paul, in putting this all together, is trying to unify a church that has been divided. And how he unifies them is around the gospel. I'm going to talk about that at length today. Um, this, this presentation of the gospel unifies them. And then there's, a, there's kind of a surprise when you get to chapter 15, around verse 20, where Paul says, and the reason I need you unified is because I'm coming to visit you. I want that to be a pleasant visit. But even more importantly, I need you to be a base for me to get to Spain. Because I'm going to come visit you in in Rome, in Italy, and I'm going to take the gospel to a new place in Spain. I need you guys unified. Um, And so that's why Paul is is writing this book, why he's he's going through this elaborate presentation of the gospel with a lot of theology and a lot of practicality. I want to make a point about that that you're going to see again and again and again. The theology precedes the practical. It's not just a, hey, here's what I need you to do. Live like this. He gets 11 chapters of theology. 
And, and I would say it this way. I tried to work with uh, how to phrase this. The rationale of grace precedes the reason of grace. The theology, the rationale, God's gracious, look at it this way. That has to come first before the response of how you live. The rationale of grace precedes the response of grace. And I think in the church, we make a huge problem for ourselves when we just give the response of grace. And we focus too much, what I would say, focusing too much on application without setting the stage of the, the reason for the application first. And Paul's going to develop his argument that way. Now, why is this so relevant? A year ago, I decided to preach this book because the forces of our culture were pulling us all apart, were separating us, very similar to the cultural realities that were taking place in the first century when Paul is writing this book. And so I decided in a, in, a, in a culture that's pulling our church apart with all kinds of different opinions on, on, on justice, and now it's developed into, you know, what is justice? Um, what about vaccines? What about masks? There's so many varied opinions that we can have on all of those things that are driving us apart. And I said, no, we've got to be unified around the gospel. I don't have to solve all these questions, but I can unify us around the gospel. And it's just gotten worse. Timothy Dalrymple says this. The longer we live in separate media worlds, the deeper and broader our divisions will come, will become. The longer we give ourselves to media gluttony, skimping on the deeper nourishment that cultivates Christ within us, the less we will have in common. The more time we spend in the media world that we, cho- we choose, um, Whatever media world it is that, that you choose to listen to, or social media, whatever it is, the, the more that that becomes the major input for us, the, the more our divisions are going to just get extreme because you're going to find stuff out there. You know, I mean, in, in conversations, how many times have you said, well, you know, and you're having a peaceful conversation, it's fine, maybe it never gets bad, but you go, well, you know, here, here's what I'm thinking. And then somebody says, well, I've read. And the more that we, we, we're gluttons for all of that media that's out there that is um, controlled by Satan to divide the church, uh, the more that we are gluttons on that, and, and here this, this is an important point, it's not just turn that off, it is find your nourishment in the gospel, find your, your, your anchor in, in the word of God and what Christ has done, and that will bring us back together and unify. It doesn't eliminate choices we have to make about vaccines and masks and, and, and those. It doesn't eliminate that, but it unifies us in making those decisions. So I, I preach this book, and I feel like the need for the book has done nothing but escalate over the past year. Um, and so what I want to do is, is I want to take us back through kind of what's going on in Romans. How, how does this flow? And I'm going to go through this a number of times of how is he presenting the gospel? What is the gospel that he is presenting? Um, and, then, and then eventually I'm going to get to what are some lessons we need to have taken away from this? But I, I truly am opening myself up. What are the lessons you took away from it? What are the unique insights or the things that you just went you know, this finally sunk in, or this isn't sinking in. Please let me know what they are. Um, here's, how, here's how Romans unfolds. 
In Romans chapter 1, the first chapter, Paul introduces himself. Remember, he's not planted the church. He introduces himself, and he tells them, I really wanted to come visit you guys. Um, I, I wanted to, to be there and to encourage you, and I've planned to do that, but I, but I haven't been able to make it there yet. But, but I want to let you know that I'm going to be there, and, and, and I, I'm going to take the gospel everywhere I go. And I want to tell you, and he says in verse number 16, 17, 18, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God. The gospel brings righteousness to us through faith. For Jews and Gentiles, he makes it very clear. There in the very beginning, he lets us know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In it, righteousness is found through faith for Jews and Gentiles. Righteous standing before God and righteous transformation of our life and a righteous hope. All of that is found in the, in the truth of the gospel. And he says, I am convinced that this is the, the thing that orients my life. I'm not ashamed of it. It is, it is what I'm proclaiming everywhere I go. And it's what you guys need to hear to unify you. Um, and, and he's saying righteousness is found in the gospel. But then he spends three chapters saying, because none of us have righteousness. And in three chapters, he develops this idea that both Jews and Gentiles, everybody, at length, with elaborate arguments, all of us fall short of God's standard. All of us fall short of his glory. And he, he says, the, the, the Gentile world is condemned. The Jewish moral, moralistic world, they're condemned. Everybody is equally condemned before God. We do not have righteousness. Righteousness is found in the gospel. You don't have it on your own. He does that for three chapters. Then in chapter 3, verse 21, there's uh, the most significant change that takes place. There's a but. You're condemned. You're condemned. Everybody's condemned. Everybody's a sinner. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But, 321, but there's a righteousness that is available to us through faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. We don't have righteousness, but we can have righteousness through what Jesus Christ has done. And beginning at the end of chapter 3 and then through chapters 4 and 5, he develops that. First of all, he develops it historically in chapter 4 with Abraham. And he's going to cite Abraham as the father of faith, really connecting with the Jewish people. But what he cites with Abraham is this. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. How did Abraham become righteous? It wasn't his performance. It was he believed God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. He's making the point, it's always been this way, guys. You've always been saved by grace through faith. Even Abraham, the head of the Jewish group, he was saved by grace through faith. That's how he was saved. Then in chapter 5, he, he develops it much more theologically, and he's going to use a bunch of big terms we'll talk about in a minute, that we're forgiven, that we are redeemed, that we find atonement, and there's propitiation, there's reconciliation. He talks about all of these benefits that are found um, in the gospel that solves our problem of not having righteousness. And, and then he goes back and theologically he says, and this all started with one man on each side. Sin came through Adam, and righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. Um, and all of us are descendants of Adam. And, and because of that, his sin is, 
is imputed to us. We're guilty because we're connected to him. But you can be righteous if you connect yourself to Jesus Christ. And and that's how you get this righteousness. You need it, chapters 1 through 3. You can get it through faith in Jesus Christ, chapters 4, 5, and 6. Or chapters at the end of 3, 4, and 5. And then in chapter 6, he's going to make this transition to say, you know, it doesn't stop there with just the imputed righteousness. It's not just that, that your sinfulness is imputed to Jesus and his righteousness is imputed to you. There's a living out of this righteousness because not only do you receive the gift of salvation, but you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who's now going to be transforming you into the image of Christ. It's a slow transformation process. It's a cooperative process, but, but we're being sanctified. And, and it starts with us identifying with Jesus. My new identity is I am in Christ. Um, I struggle, chapter 7, because of my flesh. But there's no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ. And the empowerment that you have for that transition, that, that, that slow transformation, the empowerment you have is the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is why we spent so much time in chapter 8. Because chapter 8 is that key for current transformation. And it's through the Spirit, not your own efforts. It's embracing the grace of God, embracing the gift of the Holy Spirit that empowers you not to do miraculous things. It's not that. It's the Holy Spirit empowers you to love some other people around you and live a righteous life and serve well and get a t-shirt. The Holy Spirit empowers you and gifts you so that you can serve people around you. And then he's going to say, gosh, these are great promises, aren't they? (laughs) You were condemned. You didn't have righteousness, but you can get it through faith in Jesus Christ, and you can slowly be transforming your life to look like Christ, who you've now identified with, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, even in light of the frailty of your flesh. These are great promises, aren't they? Well, you can trust God for that. He's, made, he's telling you, you get all this stuff, how do I know I can trust him? And in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he, he goes and he says, because everything God's ever said... He's made good on. He deals with Israel. God's dealing with Israel in the past. God's dealing with Israel in the present. And God's dealing with Israel in the future. Three successive chapters. And in all of those chapters, he's saying, see, God promised and he came through. God makes good on his promises. So his making good on the promise for you to have salvation and grow in sanctification, you can trust him in that. Then in chapter 12, he makes the transition to go, say, what does that look like practically? Okay, now now that I've set forth all of this theological presentation of the grace of God that's available, giving us salvation and empowerment for Christian living, now that I've given you the the rationale of God's grace, Paul calls it this, I beseech you, I entreat you, I'm I'm begging you, I'm urging you, and he, he summarizes it by the mercies of God. These mercies that recognize you're condemned, you can have salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, and growing sanctification through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit as you cooperate with him. What what does that look like? Well, I beseech you, on the basis of these mercies, the rationale of grace precedes the response of grace. And the response of grace is you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then you live humbly in relation to yourself and you serve some other people, you love your enemies, you submit to the government, and you figure out how to get along with people with differences. That's chapters 12 through 16. That's Romans. That's how it flows, okay? 
We spent 42 messages trying to say what I just said in 10. Tom Schreiner summarizes it this way. He says, I would summarize the theme of Romans as follows. The gospel is the saving power of God in which the righteousness of God is revealed. That message, the saving power of God in which the righteousness of God is revealed, doesn't eliminate differences, but what it does is it takes people with different histories, different preferences, different opinions, and it unites them around this message. The righteousness of God is revealed. We can get it imputed, and then we can reveal that righteousness, living it out in our lives based on what Christ has accomplished through redemption in the cross and the gift of the Holy Spirit for us. I said it this way, that the exciting good news, this is the good news, it unites us. The exciting good news that we proclaim is that salvation comes through faith resulting in righteousness, resulting in righteous standing before God and righteousness, slow transformation in our life to the image of Jesus Christ. At that first message, here's the next steps that I ended with. Accept the gospel. Understand that, that you need the gospel. You're, you're condemned if you don't have it. You're guilty before God. Accept it. And then live it out. Live out this righteousness empowered by the Holy Spirit as the gift of Jesus Christ. By the way, I mean, one of the things that Daryl Bach says about this is John 3.16 is no less important than Luke 3.16. John 3.16, God loved the world. He gave his only son so that uh, anyone who believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Luke 3.16 says when he comes, he's going to do something very different. He's going to baptize us with the Spirit. That's, that's what we're going to get. That's, that's really important for our salvation and our sanctification. And then live that out and share it with other people. In terms of sharing it with other people, I'm going to put this together a bunch of different ways. Um, theologically, here, here's how the book flows. The first three chapters are all about sin. The big theological word for that is hamartiology. It's one of the Greek words for sin. It's all about sin. It focuses on man, man's sinfulness. Chapters 4 and 5, really the end of chapter 3, but 4 and 5 is salvation. That's soteriology, and it focuses on Christ and his accomplishment. Chapter 6 through 8 is sanctification. That focuses on the Holy Spirit empowering us to have a transformed life, even in the midst of the struggle that we have with our flesh. Chapters 9 through 11, you're secure in that because God will make good on his promises to save you and sanctify you. And then how does that look in the church life? Well, we're serving one another. That's what it looks like. I, let me take that away from theological topics and just make it some propositions, some statements. Chapters 1 through 3, sin separates all people from God. Chapters 4 and 5, salvation is through faith in Christ. 6 through 8, sanctification is by the Holy Spirit, not your own efforts. 9 through 11, security is based in God's work. You're secure, not because you could pull it off. You're secure because God will make good on all of his promises. And his ultimate promise in that 6 through 8 thing is we're going to have a, a resurrection body and the battle will be over with. One day, sin, death, and Satan are going to be cast into the lake of fire. One day. Until then, there's a battle going on. Until then, there's going to be differences. But one day, the dirty, rotten 
lion, devil, and death, and my own sinfulness is going to be cast into the lake of fire. I won't struggle with it anymore. God's promised that, and you can count on it. And our service is the only reasonable response. If you get chapters 1 through 11, you're guilty. Jesus saves you. The Holy Spirit sanctifies you, and you can count on God. What can you do other than respond by saying, I'm going to present my body to, to God as a living sacrifice. <laughs> and, and I'm going I'm to think of myself in a right perspective, use my gifts for the church, love people around me, even treat the people who oppose me well. Was submit to the government, and I'm going to figure out how to get along with people I disagree with. That's Romans. So let me define some important big terms here, okay? Um, the gospel. The gospel is not just, oh, good news. I got some good news for you. Come here. Let me share some good news with you. The gospel is announced good news. It's declared good news. It isn't subtle good news. It's euangeleon. It is, it is spoken announced good news. It's worth sharing. That's what the gospel is. It's, it's worth sharing with other people. It is really good news, and it's announced. It's shared. Justification. We're justified by faith. It means you're declared not guilty. You're acquitted. You're, you're declared innocent. Your standing before God is right. Um, justification. It's, before God, it's just as if you'd never sinned. And that's accomplished by Christ. Another big word that's used in here is redemption. Redemption means being purchased from bondage or slavery. When you redeem something from a pawn shop, okay? If you redeem something from a pawn shop, it's something that you owned that got sold into bondage and possession to another, and you had to pay a price to get your own stuff back. That's what God does. We belong to him, created in his image, sold into slavery, and he pays a price to get his own stuff back. We're his stuff. And he paid the price willingly to get us back through the death of his son. He purchased us back. Another word, propitiation, sometimes translated atonement, even though that's something different. Propitiation, though, is this idea of satisfying a consequence. There's a consequence for your sinfulness. It's separation from God. And what Christ does is he satisfies the consequence. He pays the penalty for our sin. Now, I need to clarify this because it's so important for, for everybody to understand the whole biblical narrative. Justification. How do we get ourselves right with God? It's always by grace. In the Old Testament, the New Testament, it's always by grace. From the beginning to the end, you never earn it. Yes, there are laws in the Old Testament, but the laws regulate how believers relate to God. The law was never a live these laws and you'll be saved. You're saved always by grace. Um, Noah found grace. It's, it's translated favor often, but it's, it's the Hebrew word chain. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then what you see, that's, that's Genesis 6, 8. Genesis 6, 9, the next verse says he was a righteous man. The grace that he found precedes him being righteous. And we just, something in our hearts make us go, no, he was, he was righteous. And, and then we say, oh, and because he was righteous, he found grace. Wrong order of verses. Salvation's always by grace through faith. What about Abraham? 
Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's always by grace and it's always through faith. It is always those who trust God. Now, in the Old Testament, it wasn't clear like it is now. They were trusting God for the promise of a redeemer. Now, and that becomes a little more clear as you move through the Old Testament. But they knew God had to solve this problem somewhere. And there are pictures of it in the sacrificial system. Somebody's dying in my place here. Um, and, and God made it explicit as, as the worshiper killed the animal for the sin sacrifice. And, and they're, they're understanding God's promise he's going to take care of this. And there's going to have to be some kind of substitution. Little by little, it becomes more and more clear until there's a clear expectation of it's going to be a Messiah. And in the New Testament, Paul in Romans even talks about this as the mystery. The mystery is it's Jesus. It wasn't disclosed in the Old Testament. Now the mystery's been revealed. Jesus is the Redeemer. And so our faith is no longer in a promise. It's now in a person. But your salvation has always been by grace, through faith, in what Jesus accomplishes. They had to believe it forward and say, God's going to figure it out somehow. Now we know exactly how he figured it out. (laughs) We get it, and our faith is in Jesus Christ. And that's a whole gracious provision. You don't earn it. It's by grace, through faith. That's how justification comes. That's the, the, the... gospel message we're presenting to people. And then we go, and you know what you get with that salvation? You also get the Holy Spirit who helps change your life and conform you into the image of Christ. This is good news. Let me tell you about it. Let me announce to you some good news. And that's why Paul, back in chapter one, he says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the transforming reality of the gospel and it's worthy of our lives. It's worthy of us committing ourselves to it. To live it out individually, never becoming satisfied with, okay, I've got it. Everything's fine now. I'm okay. I'm better than guy. Um, At least on Tuesdays. Sometimes. But I'm satisfied with that. It's not comparing um, it's, it's, it's basically saying this is transforming my life and I'm going to give, give everything I am to it. And it's not based on performance. It's based on transformation that's inwardly happening for us. So finally, I get to some things that I think we should take away from here. Here's some lessons I hope we learn. And, and, and seriously, if we didn't learn them, we're coming back to them. Okay? If, if we're back in Romans... Um, in January, here's what you know. You didn't text me or email me. First of all, the gospel unites us in spite of many significant differences in histories. Folks, let's, let's just let's admit it. We all have different histories related to justice. We have different histories related to um, vaccines and masks. And some people have been impacted very significantly and personally by COVID-19. And other people, it's kind of a distance off in there. We have different histories. And, and let's admit, we've got different histories and perspectives on those things. But, but that is not what we have to figure out. What unites us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What unites us is the gospel that that any way we can figure out how to get together 
and, and be with one another and hear one another and see each other and interact with one another so that the gospel goes deeper in our lives and we're committed to it and it goes further out and around the world, that's what unites us. Not solving all those other problems. There's another point here, and this is really significant. The condemnation of the gospel, every person is equally guilty of falling short of God's standard. There is no room for judgment. doesn't matter whether you're, you've lived a good life or, or not lived such a good life. We are all equally guilty before God. And when he describes in the Gentile world the spiral of sin, he's not saying these sins are worse than these sins. and these. He's, he's giving an example of it becomes unnatural because what's natural is to worship God. And it's unnatural to not worship God like the other unnatural sins that he gives. He's not giving the worst sins. I mean, some of you may have grown up like me. I was a goody two-shoes, okay? I, I had um, mildly problematic older siblings. Talk to me later. I'll tell you some stories. Um, but I was a goody two-shoes. I'm equally condemned before God. You take Ken Wilson and Adolf Hitler and put them on this stage here, okay? You fly a plane across at 30,000 feet. Both of us are trying to jump to get on that plane. You know what? We will both fall short. Now, I may be able to jump a little higher than him. He may be able to jump a little higher. We are both falling short. And maybe looking at us, you would see a difference between Ken Wilson and Adolf Hitler. I pray you would. But from 30,000 feet, you know what? Both of us miss it by a lot. Both of us miss it by a lot. And the difference is negligible because we all fall short of the glory of God. And from our standard, if I judge that against somebody else, I may do better than them. But from the standard of 30,000 feet trying to get there, we all fall short. And the difference doesn't matter. We're all guilty. So stop judging other people as worse than you. Let me say a moment about the wrath of God. This is saying we're all condemned and we're all guilty. We're all sinners. That's not hate speech. If I were saying you're a sinner and I'm not, you're a worse sinner and I'm not, that can move towards hate speech. But here's what I'm saying. We are all sinners. Everybody falls short of the glory of God. Everybody falls way short of the glory of God. It's gospel truth. God loved the world. He doesn't hate the world. He loved the world. Enough that even though we rebelled against him, he and his wisdom and his love figured out a way to reconcile us to him at huge cost to himself, not at cost to us. God loves the world. He doesn't hate the world. But I love what Doug Moose says. You you don't fully understand the bad news. Unless you fully understand the bad news, you can't fully appreciate the good news. The good news is there's a way to God. The bad news is everybody needs it. (laughs) And the only way to God is through Jesus Christ, not your effort, not anything other than faith in Jesus Christ. Here's another thing we should have learned here, the clarity of the gospel. Each of us should be able to articulate the gospel clearly and passionately. And I've gone through it a bunch already today. But let me simplify it. Three, Three things. Sin separates us from God. 
Sin separates us from God. You've got to start there. You've got to have bad news before the good news. The bad news is our sin separates us from God, everybody equally. I'm not judging. I was separated from God too. Salvation is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the solution. Sin separates us. Jesus is the solution because he paid for our penalty. And that righteousness, as a standing we have before God, lives itself out in sanctification as an ongoing transformation through the power of the Spirit. We get righteous standing, we develop and transform into righteous people, and that's all the good news that can happen. Apart from the good news of the gospel, you don't have righteous standing, and all your righteousness that you try to create on your own is just filthy rags. That's the gospel. Sin separates us from God. Jesus is the solution to that, and the Holy Spirit transforms us. The comprehensiveness of the gospel, it it involves justification, sanctification, and glorification. That's what I just said. It involves being saved, sanctified, and glorified. Justification is freedom from the penalty of sin. We're no longer under the penalty of sin. And by the way, the good news is all of this is true. We're no longer under the penalty of sin. That's the past part of it. Currently in the present, we're being freed from the power of sin through sanctification. Slowly, transformatively, as we cooperate with the work of the Spirit in our lives, we are, we're transformed into the image of Christ until one day we'll be freed from the presence of sin. Not just the presence of sin in everybody around us, the presence of sin in me. I will be freed from the presence of sin. Satan... My current weak flesh, Old Testament word of it is bizarre. My flesh that's weak and contaminated and corrupt. The New Testament word, it sarks. It just sounds dirty. All of that will be transformed because I'll get a resurrection body that's like his body. And I'll be glorified one day. That's my hope. That's good news, folks. But there's a challenge in that transformation Yes, we're justified by faith because we have a new identity in Christ, but we struggle with the flesh that makes it hard. But there's victory in the Holy Spirit. That's five, six, seven, and eight. That's how the, the flow goes. And it's, it's something that is a cooperative work. Wayne Grudem says sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. The, real, the transformation is I'm living more like Christ, who loved God and loved other people around him. Um, this is a really important point. One more point must be added to this discussion of our role in sanctification. Sanctification is usually a corporate process in the New Testament. It's something that happens in community. That's why we're working so hard to maintain community. It's why we're working so hard so that next week, get you in community in here if you don't want to wear a mask. Get you in community somewhere else if you feel like you need to wear a mask and you need everybody around you to wear a mask. That's fine. Just get together because sanctification takes place in community, not in isolation. And we're going to work hard because people have different preferences and opinions and histories related to all that. And so we're going to do the best we can to say gospel's happening here, gospel's happening there, get together where gospel's happening, and make that transform you in your life. Let's skip that one. How does that happen? What what, what are the other things about that? Um, Read your Bible, and and I keep trying to tell people, read it slower than you you are. Don't read huge hunks of your Bible. Stop reading your Bible. That's what I say. Stop reading your Bible so much of it. (laughs) 
Read a little bit of it. Read one book for a month. Read Philippians 30 times. Um, read, I, this is from, from Dawn. Read one chapter in the New Testament a day, five days a week, you'll read the whole Bible. Read one chapter. Stop reading your Bible so much. Read one chapter. Read slower. Constantly be in prayer. Keep yourself constantly praying um, in the middle of everything you're going through. When people, when you're having a hard time, pray. When, when you're with somebody else, pray with them. When you're in the middle of your struggle, pause and pray. Live that out in real community. People where you can be honest with and you can share your life with. Find that somewhere. We're trying to make it happen in our home churches. If it's not happening in your home churches, find it. Find a place where you can be honest about your struggles with sin. And, and interpret the grace of God. God's always involved in your life, but look for where he's gracious in your life. Because it's the rationale of grace in our life that leads us to respond to that by loving him well. So, so always be looking for how God's grace is in your life. I have no idea what God is up to with all of the division in our world today. I don't get it. Every time I feel like, okay, that was a real you know, cleansing process, and then we delta variant it out of here. Jeez. God, what are you doing here? You don't want me to tell you what I think he might be doing. But somehow it's gracious. He's got a gracious plan. And in the middle of all that, are you falling more deeply in love with Jesus? Here's what we get to do. We, we, we are living this way. We're living with the grace of God all over us. Beginning, middle, end. It's all God's grace. I, I didn't earn my salvation. I, I don't uh, do salvation in my own strength. And, and I'm not going to defeat Satan and hell and sin. He is. It's grace, beginning, middle, and end. It's all over me. The cross is behind me. And has paid for all my penalty. The Spirit's within me, transforming me. And my hope is resurrection in the future. Folks, this is good news. <laughs> and the completeness of the gospel is very Trinitarian. <laughs> the gospel is based on the grace of God, the work of Christ, and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We fall short of God's glory. Jesus Christ fixes that. And the Holy Spirit is transforming us in that. And again, most people throw away chapters 9 through 11. It's really important. Such great promises are made in the gospel. It's such good news. Could you believe it? I don't know if I can believe it. You know what? You can, because God can be trusted. Romans 9 through 11, he will do what he said he would do. Always. He makes good on his promises. And then when you get to chapter 12, the gospel impacts our relationships. Our relationship with God and, and relationship with others. Vertical and horizontal, your relationships are changed as you embrace the gospel. Again, I, li I just like F.F. F. Bruce, so I'm going to quote him again. In the New Testament, religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. If you want to be religious, okay, it's all about grace. It's not about rituals and, and rules and any of that. Religion is just grace. And ethics, how we live, that's just gratitude. That's brilliant. All theology is practical and all practice, if it's truly Christian, is theological. Um, it's all based in this theology of who God is, what he's done for us, and how we respond to that. And how we respond, we saw as a series of relationships in 12 through 13. 
We relate to God by consecrating ourselves to him, uh, a living sacrifice to him. We're humble. We don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but we serve other people and we love one another. We submit to our, we serve our enemies. We submit to the government and the the summary of it is you're all Christ-like. And when you find people you have differences with over food or Sabbath observance or Passover or masks or vaccines, don't judge each other. Edify, stupid. Figure out how you can build each other up. Don't deny the truth of the gospel, and don't deny there's differences, but figure out how to accept each other. What have we learned? I don't know. You tell me. And if you don't, we're coming back here again. I think we've learned this. The gospel unites us in spite of many significant differences in histories. No matter where you're coming from, no matter where you may what you may have experienced and what you may feel like is the most defining thing of how we need to make decisions, it's the gospel. That's what unites us. Um, Dan Hill says, all theology finds its end in doxology, praise, worship. Once you figure it all out, you're going to worship him. We learn and study about this great God of the gospel so that we might learn to praise him rightly. And one day, that is what we will do for endless days, and it will be more than enough. One day, when our penalty is not just paid, and and we're no longer struggling with sin, but there will be no sin, no flesh, no Satan, and all that we do will praise God. And news for you, how we relate to other will be a praise of God. Heaven's going to be great. Heaven is not floating around on a cloud in a diaper with a harp. That is not heaven. Heaven is us interacting, loving one another, taking walks, looking at sunsets, and all of that is praising God. Because Adam and Eve, in the original plan, Adam and Eve walked around in the garden and God visited them in the cool of the day. Not all day long. You know what? The rest of the day, they were in this thing that, trust me, it's a temple. The garden is kind of the first model of the temple. They're walking around in that and all of their walking around interacting with each other, was praising God. Not verbally, but just how they loved one another. Heaven's going to be fun. And everything we do there will be praising him. Let's start doing it now. Let's start getting along with each other now. So here's, let me, let me end again. Know the gospel well. Share the gospel clearly. And if you get all this theology... Let's praise him enthusiastically. Would you stand as I pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of it. I thank you for um, the conviction that I feel coming from it. Father, I thank you for this community, this church that desires to live out the gospel. Father, I I appreciate the fact that for 42 weeks, they've listened to what your word says about our lives. May it truly be transformative for us. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.